Well, hey there, Fellowship about the Church, Pastor Aaron here, just uh, bringing you the message from uh, Church in the Park. We weren't able to repeat, uh, record it there, so I'm just going to re-preach it here today to an empty auditorium. It, hopefully this <laughs> kind of feels like COVID again, but no, I'm just kidding. But uh, I just hope this is uh, helpful for those who expressed they weren't able to make it for all those families. So here's the message that we preached, and it was a simple message. We looked at Luke 15, 11 to 32. The sermon was called The Prodigal God. And this is a really famous story. So instead of reading it, I just told it as a story. And the story starts with two sons, a man who had two sons. And the younger son, he became dissatisfied with his life at home. And he wanted his inheritance now. So he went to his father, told his father that, give me my portion of the inheritance. And his father did so. Uh, and he gave him his portion. This young son packed all that he had up. He went to a distant country, and Jesus says that he spent all of his inheritance on lavish living. And uh, once all his money is drained, a famine hits the area where he's at, and he realizes, okay, all his money is out, so he gets a job uh, herding pigs for a non-Jewish person, person, someone who owns pigs in this distant country, and he finds himself so hungry that he looks at the slop that the pigs are eating and he desires to also eat that same food. And in that moment, the Bible says that he comes to himself. He has an awakening and he realizes the way that his father treats his hired servants, that they have more bread than enough, that they, 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 they even have bread that's left over. So he said, I'm going to go back. I'm going to be a lowly servant in my father's house and I'm going to put together this well-versed uh, uh, confession telling my father that I've sinned before heaven and before him and that I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. Hire me as one of your servants. And he got all that prepped, all that ready, and he began his journey home. And as he was a far way off, his, his father was scanning the horizons and saw him and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him and told his servants to get the fattened calf, to kill it and slaughter, to get the robes and clothe him, to put a ring on his finger, to put sandals on his feet. For my son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost has now been found. But in the midst of all this joy and celebration, the older brother comes in from the field, the one who stayed home, the one who was, who was a, a hard worker, who comes in. He hears the uncustomed sounds of singing and dancing, and he fetches one of the servants and says, what's going on? And the servant says, hey, your brother, your kid brother's home. He's, he's alive. Aren't you excited? And instead of being excited, the older brother became angry. And the father comes out and reasons with him. And he says, I've never disobeyed you. I've never disobeyed your command. I've always been with you, yet you have never given me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But, but this son of yours comes home who has squandered your property, your money with prostitutes. You kill the fattened calf. He was angry. The father reasoned with him, but he would not join in the party. And that's the story in the nutshell. A very familiar story, but there's so much we can pull from it. But what we see in this story is the love of God on full display. 
And A.W. Tozer gives one of the best descriptions on God's love. He says this in his book titled, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he's eternal, his love can have no end. Because he's infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. What an amazing description of the love of God that Tozer gives us. And in Luke 15, we see that love that Tozer described on full display. A love that is rooted in the immense grace of our Father God. The story of the lost son is one of the most famous stories, as I've said, that has ever been told throughout history because one, it's famous because it was told by Jesus Christ, the most famous, well-known man figure in all of history, the son of God. It is famous because it is told so perfectly. There is not one detail in the story that is wasted. It is all pointing us to the climax of the story. And it's famous because when we hear it, we sense that this story is really about us. That we're all lost children who desperately need to know the Father's love. We needed it and we still need to know it today. The parable of the prodigal son comes as the climax to a series of three stories and a triple parable about the joy of God finding lost sinners. Right? Aren't we thankful that God has joy in finding lost sinners? Because I was a lost sinner, and I'm sure that you watching were also a lost sinner. And we see that these parables, it starts with the first one, the lost sheep in Luke 15, 1-7. The lost coin in Luke 15, 8-10. And now the lost son, Luke 15, 11-32. But really though, the parable is about lost sons, not just the lost Son, because even though he never left home, the older brother was just as lost as the prodigal son. And Jesus had both of these boys in mind and view. And we are meant to pay attention to both. That's why verse 11, the beginning of the prodigal son story, starts off saying there was a man who had two sons. We need to look at both. We need to identify with both. These three stories go together. Hearing them is like hearing the same melody of music played on different musical instruments. It's all the same sheet music. It's all the same music being played, but each story has its unique sound. In the third story, the story of the lost sons, is the, is the parables, the three parables, unmistakable climax. We pity the lost sheep. We prize the lost coin, but we identify most closely with the lost son. The son gets lost by his own deliberate will. Not haphazardly like a sheep, not helplessly like a coin, but willfully and defiantly. He is lost because he wants to be lost, but, but just because he's the son, there is even greater joy when he's found. We celebrate the lost sheep. We, we, we prize the lost coin, but we most identify and most overjoyed that the lost son has been found because that points to us. 
The parable could be called the parable of the prodigal God because the word prodigal can mean extremely generous or lavish. And the story is primarily about the lavishness of God's love. That is, it is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea, as Tozer described earlier in his quote. But the parable also gives us a unique opportunity to take our own spiritual temperature as Christians by observing how we relate to God's extravagant love through the two characters, the two brothers. Who do we identify with the most? Are we more like the lost son, the younger son, or are we more like the lost older son? What skin do we fit in most naturally so we can take our spiritual temperature So what we see, and what I want you to do as we walk through this now, break it down, is who do you identify the most with? See, the story begins with the younger son asking his father for his share of his inheritance in verse 12. And in that culture, the older son could expect to have two-thirds of his father's estate, and the younger son could anticipate receiving the rest. But what is irregular in the request is not the amount that he asks for. He simply requests my share, but the fact that he wants it before his father has even died. In essence, he is communicating that he wants to break all ties with this family, all associations with the family. He is planning to pack his stuff and leave and does not anticipate any further contact with his father, so he better take his inheritance with him now. He wants to start by relating to his father now the way he will once his father is dead. To put it bluntly, he wants to skip ahead to the point where he can have his father's money now without having his father. He basically said to his father's face, I wish you were dead, give me your stuff. Now, how would you feel if one of your kids came to you and said, hey, mom, dad, yo, can you just die so I can have your stuff already? That's the equivalence of what the younger son is saying to his father. It's extremely disrespectful. It's extremely heart-wrenching and gut-aching. Just put yourself in the father's shoes for a moment. And then realize this is how we speak to the father every time we sin. He longed for a life that he could get up when he wanted to, the younger son. He wanted a life where he could go wherever he wanted to go, to return home when he had to plead, whenever he pleased. He didn't want to answer to anybody. Life at home was claustrophobic. He couldn't wait to get out. He probably also reasoned back and forth in his brain that, hey, I'm only going to be young once. If I, if I follow the current arrangements, I'm going to be ancient time my father dies and I get my money and I won't be able to enjoy it to the fullest. I just want to enjoy the money to the fullest now when I'm young. And he followed this train of thought, these lies, that life would be greener on the other side. Life would be greener if he had his money now. He could enjoy it now. He could have fun now and not later. And when he followed this uh, train of thought, everything else became lousy. He couldn't even see the good that he had, his present freedoms and joys. Even the food he was eating, he became dissatisfied with because he was so focused on the greener pastures just over the hill. And we commonly do this as humans as well. We start to focus that if only this, if only I had this job, if only I had this money, if only this, if only God would do that for me, then life would be better. And when we believe these lies, 
we tend to become dissatisfied with our own life. Our wives become less attractive. Our husbands become less attractive. We, we start to lose a value in our home lives and the food we're eating, the house we live, and the jobs we work. Everything begins to filter through this lie and we become dissatisfied with even the good things in our life. We can no longer see the pleasures of what we have because we're so focused on other stuff that we forget that God has blessed us now with so much. And that produces in us a spirit of complaining. We complain about everything. We project it onto our wives and our husbands. We project it onto our kids, our homes, our cars, our jobs, and even our church. We begin to complain. Every decision is questioned and everything is complained about because we're always filtering through. It could always be better. It could always be better. It could always be better. And this is what we see with this disrespectful son in the story. It was his desire to live any way he pleases. And the thought of waiting for his father to die to enjoy the money was too long. The father saw that any further argument with his son was useless. So he gave his young son his inheritance, knowing full well what his son had planned, what the boy had in mind. He wasn't uh, ignorant. He knew what was going on. And to the observers in the story, the father's decision was crazy. It was ludicrous. Why would he do that? But the father knew that this was the only way that the son would learn, if he ever would. So they parted ways. The father stooped in sadness. The young man, feeling very smart and self-satisfied, had hot blood running through his veins. He felt like Frank Sinatra and said, I did it my way. So he took the journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living, verse 13. He was spending left, right, and center, expensive clothing and extravagant food, extravagant living quarters and parties. You can just picture it. He was the guy who would tell everyone at the party, hey, the next round is on me. Get all the drinks. Yeah, let's have a party. And everyone loved him and cheered him because he was so generous. But the fun didn't last long. The accountant was calling like, hey, man, you got to slow down on your spending. If you keep spending on this track, you're going to run out of money by this date. Hey, maybe you should make some investments. Slow down. You're spending too much. But through this wild living, as Jesus put it in verse 13, it quickly drains the young man's financial resources. And when a severe famine hits the region in verse 14, he finds himself without any money, friends, or prospects. And in the end, his only option is take a, to take a job feeding pigs. The job would have made all the religious leaders listening to Jesus' story gas. What? This young man was not only just working for a non-Jew, a Gentile, which is, is frowned upon, he's also keeping pigs? This was forbidden in the Levitical law. It was an unspeakable degradation for a Hebrew boy, a Jewish swineherder. Who ever heard of such a thing? And verse 16 frames this picture for us purposely. He was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs were eating on, but no one gave him anything. So there he was amid all these, uh, uh, the sea of moving snouts and uncaring pigs' eyes. Just a few months before, everyone loved him. Everyone praised him. Everyone said that he had class because of his money. He was a rising star into the heavens. And now no one would give him even a husk to chew on. Nobody cared about him anymore. He had sought freedom and he thought he found it, but now he's in virtual slavery. 
And the boy was at his wit's end and was in extreme desperation. And something amazing happened in his desperation. In verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he had an epiphany. The Spirit of God opened his eyes and he realized, I'm lost. I've screwed up. I've made a mistake. He starts to remember how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread than I have. But I hear I perish in hunger. That's not who I am. I'm a son of my father. So he puts together this well-rehearsed speech telling, I'm going to tell my father I've sinned against heaven and before him. I'm not even longer worthy to be called your son, but make me a lowly servant. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And in the man's desperation, it grants him a healthy measure of clarity. And we too as Christians can remember a time when God in his kindness made us miserable enough in our sins that we finally called out to him for help. There's an old saying that goes, change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. And this was a painful change for the son. He had to come to terms with that he was wrong, that he was an idiot, and he had to confess his idiocy to his father. But all of that pain and all that confession was far less than staying and starving in the pigsty. And it makes me think, what in your life, what in my life are we refusing to change? What are you refusing to change? Where in your life do you need to come to a similar awakening like the young son that he had in verse 17? That this isn't right. I'm a child of the Father. This isn't conducive with who I am in Christ. Maybe you're here and you've been seeking God. Maybe you know uh, that serving him, you, you don't know much about it, but you know there's some truth here and you're, and you're seeking it out, but you know if you surrender your whole life to him that it will be painful. Or maybe you're here watching this and, and you're, you're serving God, but you keep going to old wells for satisfaction. You keep running to the same sin that you've repented of a hundred times and you know this isn't conducive with who you are in Christ. Whatever it is, I encourage you not to wait until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. I encourage you to do the hard work now, to come to Christ now, to allow him to bring you freedom and healing now. Now, don't wait. See, the lost boy's change of mind didn't just come because he was miserable. Yeah, that was a big part of it. But he was also driven by unrelenting memories of home. He longed to be with his father. He had forgotten so much, but one thing he did not forget was his father's love. He reasoned that it was better to be a lowly servant in his father's house than remain where he was. But he was not prepared for what awaited him. This is where the story gets beautiful. What the young son did not realize was that everything about him was burnt on his father's consciousness. Every feature his father had treasured of his dear son, and he wept over repeatedly that he would recognize his errant son anywhere. Even more, the father had daily been scanning the horizon, looking for his son, waiting for his son to return home. And then one powerful sentence sums this whole story. The young son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
What did he feel? He felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 20. Though through covered rags, he was covered in filthy rags and maybe even some pig excrement, something familiar in his son, perhaps it was his posture or the way he walked or stood, told the father that this was his son. And he immediately felt compassion. That is, he was so overcome with a physical reaction, his whole body ached and thrilled at once that he ran. And this was very undignified for older men in this culture to run. And he ran to him and embraced him. And if you read it in the original language, it means that he kissed him and 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 kissed him all over his face, just like one of those ants you see at your Thanksgiving meal once a year. And she kisses you and kisses you and kisses you. This is what the Father did to you. And then in the midst of this, the son what, blurts out his well-rehearsed confession. Father, I, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, verse 21. And, bef- and this is so often what we do. We sin and we do the same thing. We come to God and we're like, oh, Lord, forgive me again. Help me again. Help me not to sin that again. And we, I'm no longer worthy to be, called, to be used by you. And we put all these well-versed confessions out, but the father cut the son off before he could finish. And he cried out, bring quickly the best robe and put on him a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for my son who is dead. He is alive again. He is lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. The father had his servants bring out the best robes, a long garment that reached his feet, something that a king would be wear. And then a ring was thrusted upon his finger, which was symbolic of sonship. And finally, new sandals on his callous feet. This is my son. He's no lowly servant who wears no shoes. He's my son. Put sandals on his feet. And here we must see that the real prodigal in the story is the Father, representing our Heavenly Father, God Himself. This is the parable of the prodigal God who is infinite, who is a consuming fire, who is holy and demands holiness and cannot stand sin. But when we turn to Him, my friends, and we come to Him through Christ, He is the God who comes running to you to lavish His love upon you. That's the God gospel story, the good news of the prodigal God who rushes to meet sinners with his love. He rushes to meet sinners with his love. Aren't we thankful for that? No one is beyond the Father's love. You can do, you cannot do anything that will keep him from kissing you and kissing you and bestowing upon you the robes of Christ's righteousness and the ring of adoption as son and daughters and sandals on your feet for your journey because you are his son. You are distinguished. You are set apart for him. Utter forgiveness, my friends, is the only kind that God gives. And there's only two qualifications for this forgiveness. First, We must see ourselves of who we are before we can see God. Meaning, just like the lost son who came to his senses, realized he was lost, realized that he made, that he's a sinner in need of salvation. And when you come to that point, when you realize that you are a sinner in need of salvation, the second thing you do is you just come home. You just go to God. Come to him. 
You see, there's many of us who sit in the churches and we, and we just we think we're good because we've said a prayer. But many Christians have said a prayer and are sitting and going through the motions of church and are destined for hell because they don't know God. They have not come home. They're as lost as they were before. And the joy of the party described here is no exaggeration. But like all earthly illustrations of spiritual realities, it all falls short because Jesus said that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. You see, tears of repentance are the wine of angels. This is an uproarious heavenly joy and it's real and it's tangible. But in the midst of all this joy, in the midst of all this uh, celebration, the story takes a darker turn as the older brother, he comes from the field where he always was. He's a hard worker and he came and he heard the uncustomed sound of dancing and music and he summoned one of the servants who of course told him this great news in verse 27. Your brother, he said, your kid brother, you could just hear it. He's come home. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, he's a little beat up. He has a little wear and tear on him from the journey, but he's okay. I'm so happy that I have the privilege to let you know this good news. And rather than meeting the servant's joy, he becomes angry. The word used here carries the idea of swelling anger that rises like a sap out of a tree on a hot day. He was boiling. He absolutely refused to go into the party. His father came out and his father encouraged him again and again to share in the celebration. But the older son finally exploded and his father said, and then look! Look at all these many years that I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never give me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came home who squandered your property with prostitutes, and you kill the fattened calf for him? The younger son had been far from his father physically in a distant country because of his sins of passion. But the elder brother, the son, was separated from his father through the sin of attitude. He was even farther away than his younger brother, and he had not yet even left the farm. The older son was a respectable man. Respectable man. He was likely looked up to in the community. He brought honor to his family's name through his hard work. When everything on the outside seemed good and all the, all, all the good things and descriptions you could say about him and the accolades that you, can, and you, you could do ascribe to him, you could not say about the younger son who was visibly distant and flawed. But the older brother was so shiny and good on the outside like a lot of us who filter into the churches but something was missing. Something was missing. The older son was completely out of sync with that of the father. He did not share the father's loving heart. In fact, he was sorry that his little brother had even come home. He called him this son of yours rather than this brother of mine. Because somehow in his mind along the way, he became dependent that his position his position as the number one son was dependent upon his work, upon his ability to maintain it, to strengthen it, to receive it, and to be in good standing. And it sounds like a lot of us, as we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are saved by the work of Christ, not by our own work, but a gift of God that we may not boast, Ephesians 2, but yet we still operate like this 
older brother who can't just enjoy his position. We can't enjoy our position because we're always trying to work for it. And for similar reasons like the older brother, we find it hard to share the father's joy. The elder brother was judgmental. He was too convinced of his own goodness, too attached to his own hardships to understand his own brother's. He was self-righteous. He overstated his performance. He said, look, all these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. Never? Never's a pretty bold statement. He was convinced of his own goodness and his assurance made improvement and teachability impossible, like many Christians. The elder brother is one of the most spiritually unattractive people in the entire Bible. He's stingy. He's self-pitying. He's resentful. He's proud. He's bitter. He's unrepentant. He's unforgiving and unwilling to show grace to other sinners. And the only thing he knew how to celebrate was his own accomplishments. In other words, he was like the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus' story. He was all about himself, and he's probably a lot more like us than we dare to admit. The older brother resented the father because, uh, and the younger brother because how easily the father forgave the son. He wanted to see the younger son humiliated and chastised for his sins. And he never expected his father's response to his younger brother. And friends, that's the same response that the father gave to the younger son is the same response he gives to you and me. Don't hide from him when you sin. Don't believe the lie that you can't go into his presence when you sin because he doesn't want to see you or he's disappointed in you or he hates you or somehow stopped loving you. Rather, the Bible tells us to run to him, not run from him. He's never turned his back on you. He knows the sins you've committed and still sent the son to die for you. And if you're here thinking, if you're listening to this thinking that you've messed up way too much, you're like the older brother, and you're saying this is way too good to be true, and you're feeling down about yourself, and you're thinking God can never like a failure like you, just look at his response to his younger son who said to his face, I wish you were dead. Give me your money so that I might live my own life. And then came running home with his tail between his legs. Look what he did. He killed the fattened calf. He clothed him. He put a ring on his hand and he put shoes on his feet. And he celebrated his return. Run home. Run to God. You who are watching today, if it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, go to him. Go to him. Turn to God and he will run to you and forgive you and lavish his love upon you. There is no sin that is so great that yet the greater God, sorry, there is no sin that is too great that the grace of God is not yet greater. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, the Bible says. So today is the day to put your faith in Christ. But church, as we grow, which we are, we're filling up, we're growing, we're impacting the community. And as we continue to impact the community and we see people come to Christ, we need to guard our attitudes. Because how often we find ourselves thinking like the elder brother. We ignore the desperate situation of the people who are spiritually lost, not pursuing relationship with them that we might bring reconciliation with them to God. We look down on people who are outside the church and thus we are unable to attract them with Christ-like love. We have an outward reputation of doing the right thing, but a lot of times inside our hearts are cold to the sinners out there and to God. 
We cherish secret sins, including some that we have never committed, but we certainly would if we could get away with it. We want more recognition for what we're doing, and we resent it when we do not get the praise that we think we deserve, and we get angry when others are uh, are elevated above us and we get overlooked. Even if we believe that we are saved by grace, our inner Pharisee drags us back into the courtroom of performance-based assessments of our Christian life, and we begin to believe the lie that our standing with God rises and falls based on the fulfillment of our religious duties, just like the older brother. There is so much that we could pull from this verse, but I want you to remember two things. I want you to take home two things. You haven't gone too far. God is here. He's with his arms open, wide open right now to forgive you, ready to forgive you, embrace you, and love you, and most importantly, transform you. And if you're here watching this and you're already a believer, he is calling you to express the same attitude to to those around you, to be quick to forgive, to love, to work towards restoration, to not be so inward focused that you leave a trail of hurt people behind you in this community. As we grow and we impact this community, this is so important for us to guard our attitude, especially in a small town where everybody knows everybody's business. People walking through that door has likely hurt one of you in this church. But are you going to be like the older brother who resents their forgiveness from the father? Or are you going to embrace them and work through restoration? Are you going to love them and celebrate their coming to Christ? Our church has been here for 90 years. That means there's a lot of baggage and there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of strings that are attached to a lot of people in this community. So when they start coming in, are you willing to be like the Father, to love them, to work through restoration with them, and to worship Christ standing arm in arm with them? Are you willing to be like Christ? That's my prayer. Be blessed.